Chapter Eleven of the Eye of Dread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Eye of Dread by Payne Erskine. Chapter Eleven. Betty Ballard's Awakening. Mary and Bertrand always went early to church, for Bertrand led the choir, and it was often necessary for him to gather the singers together and try over the anthem before the service. Sometimes the rector would change the hymns, and then the choir must have one little rehearsal of them. Martha and Mr. Turbyville accompanied them this morning, and Betty and the boys were to walk, for four grown-ups with little Janie sandwiched in between more than filled the carryall. In these days Betty no longer had to wash and dress her brothers, but there were numerous attentions required of her, such as only growing boys can originate, and Sister was as kind and gay in helping them over their difficulties as of old. So now, as she stepped out of her room all dressed for church in her white muslin, with green rose sprigs over it, with her green parasol and her prayer book in her hand, Bobby called her. "'Oh, sis, I've broken my shoestring, and it's time to start.' "'I have a new one in my everyday shoes, Bobby, dear. "'Run upstairs and take it out. "'They're just inside the closet door. "'Wait a minute, Jamie. "'That lock stands straight up on the back of your head. "'Can't you make it lie down? "'Bring me the brush. "'You look splendid in your new trousers.' "'Now you hurry on ahead and leave this at the Dean's. "'It's Clara's sash bow. "'I found it in the wagon after they left last night. "'Run. "'She may want to wear it to church. "'Yes, Bobby, dear. "'I sent him on, but you can catch up. "'Have you a handkerchief? "'Yes, I'll follow in a minute.' and the boys rushed off looking very clean in their sunday clothing and very old and mannish in their long trousers and stiff hats betty looked after them with pride then she bethought her that the cat had not had her saucer of milk and ran down to the spring to get it leaving the doors wide open behind her the day was quite warm enough for her to wear the summer gown and she was very winsome and pretty in her starched muslin with the delicate green buds sprayed over it she wore a green belt too and the parasol she was very proud of for she had bought it with her own chicken money it was her heart's delight. Betty's skirt reached nearly to the ground, for she was quite in long dresses, and two little ruffles rippled about her feet as she ran down the path to the spring. But alas, as she turned away, after carefully fastening the spring-house door, the cat darted under her feet, and Betty stumbled, and the milk streamed down the front of her dress and spattered her shoes, and if there was anything Betty liked, it was to have her shoes very neat. "'Oh, Kitty, I hate your running under my feet that way all the time,' Betty was almost in tears." She set the saucer down and tried to wipe off the milk, while the cat crouched before the dish and began drinking eagerly and unthankfully, after the manner of cats. Someone stood silently, watching her from the kitchen steps as she walked slowly up the path, gazing down on the ruin of the pretty starched ruffles. "'Why, Richard!' was all she said, for something came up in her throat and choked her. She waited where she stood, and in his eyes her aspect seemed that of despair. Was it all for the spilled milk?' "'Why, Betty, dear,' he caught her and kissed her and laughed at her and comforted her all at once. "'Not tears, dear. Tears to greet me. You didn't half greet me last evening, and I came only to see you. Now you will, where there's no one to see and no one to hear. Yes, never mind the spilled milk. You know better than that.' But Betty lay in his arms, a little crumpled wisp of sorrow, white and still. "'Away off there in Cheyenne I got to thinking of you, and I went to headquarters and asked to be sent on this commission just to get the chance to run up here and tell you I have been waiting all these years for you to grow up. You have haunted me ever since I left Lovite. You, darling, your laughing face was always with me, on the march, in prison, and wherever I've been since. I've been trying to keep myself right, for you, so I might dare some day to take you in my arms like this, and tell you, so I need not be ashamed before your—' "'Oh, Richard, wait!' wailed Betty, but he would not wait. 
"'I've waited long enough. "'I see you are grown up before I even dreamed you could be. "'Thank heaven I came now. "'You are so sweet, someone would surely have won you away from me. "'But no one can now. No one.' "'Richard, why didn't you tell me this when you first came home from the war, "'before you went to Scotland? "'I would—' "'Not then, sweetheart. I couldn't. "'I didn't even know then I would ever be worth the love of any woman. "'And you were such a child then. "'I couldn't intrude my weariness, my worn-out self on you.' I was sick at heart when I got out of that terrible prison, but now it is all changed. I am my own man now, dependent on no one, and able to marry you out of hand, Betty dear. After you've told me something, I'll do whatever you say, wait as long as you say. No, no, listen, don't break away from me. You don't hate me as you do the cat. I haven't been running under your feet all the time, have I, dear? Listen, see here, my arms are strong now. They can hold you forever, just like this.' I've been thinking of you and dreaming of you and loving you through these years. You have never been out of my mind nor out of my heart. I've kept the little housewife you made me and bound with your cherry-coloured hair ribbon until it is in rags, but I love it still. I love it. They took everything I had about me at the prison, but this they gave back to me. It was the only thing I begged them to leave me. Poor little Betty. She tried to speak and tried again, but she could not utter a word. Her mouth grew dry and her knees would not support her. Richard was so big and strong he did not feel her weight, and only delighted in the thought that she resigned herself to him. "'Darling little Betty, darling little Betty, you do understand, don't you? Won't you tell me you do?' But she only closed her eyes and lay quite still. She longed to lift her arms and put them about his neck, and the effort not to do so only crushed her spirit the more. Now she knew she was bad and unworthy such a great love as this. She had let Peter Jr. kiss her, and she had told him she loved him, and it was nothing to this.' She was not good, she was unworthy, and all the angels in heaven could never bring her comfort any more. She was so still, he put his cheek to hers, and it seemed as if she moaned, and that without a sound. "'Have I hurt you, Betty, dear?' "'Oh, no, Richard, no.' "'Do you love me, sweet?' "'Yes, Richard, yes, I love you so I could die of loving you, and I can't help it. Oh, Richard, I can't help it. It's asking too much that you should love me so, and yet that's what my selfish, hungry heart wants and came here for.' "'Take your face away, Richard. Stop. I must talk if it kills me. I have been so bad and wicked. Oh, Richard, I can't tell you how wicked. Let me stand by myself now. I can.' She fought back the tears and turned her face away from him, but when he let go of her, in her weakness she swayed, and he caught her to him again, with many repeated words of tenderness. "'If you will take me to the steps, Richard, and bring me a glass of water, I think I can talk to you then. You remember where things are in the house?' Did he remember? Was there anything he had forgotten about this beloved place? He brought her the water, and she made him sit beside her, but not near, only that she need not look in his eyes. Richard, I thought something was love that was not. I didn't know. It was only liking, and, and now I've been so wrong, and I want to die. Oh, I want to die. No, don't. Do you want to make me sin again? Oh, Richard, Richard, if you had only come before, now it is too late. She began sobbing bitterly, and her small frame shook with her grief. He seized her wrists, and his hand trembled. She tried to cover her face with her hands, but he took them down and held them. "'Betty, what have you done? Tell me, tell me quick!' Then she turned her face toward him, wet with tears. "'Have pity on me, Richard. Have pity on me, Richard, for my heart is broken, and the thing that hurts me most is that it will hurt you.' "'But it wasn't yesterday when I came to you out there in the woods. "'I heard you laughing, and you ran to meet me as happy as ever. "'You did not hear me laugh once again "'after you came and looked in my eyes there in the grove. "'It was in that instant that my heart began to break, "'and now I know why. "'Go back to Cheyenne. 
go far away and never think of me any more i am not worthy of you anyway i have let you hold me in your arms and kiss me when i ought not oh i have been so bad so bad let me hide my face i can't look in your eyes any more but he was cruel he made her look in his eyes and tell him all the sorrowful truth then at last he grew pitiful again and tried brokenly to comfort her to make her feel that something would intervene to help them but in his heart he knew that his cause was lost and his hopes burned within him a heap of smouldering coals dying in their own ashes he had always loved peter junior too well to blame him especially as peter could not have known what havoc he was making of his cousin's hopes it had all been a terrible mischance and now they must make the best of it and be brave yet a feeling of resentment would creep into his heart in spite of his manful resolve to be fair to his cousin and let nothing interfere with their lifelong friendship in vain he told himself that peter had the same right as he to seek betty's love why not why should he think himself the only one to be considered but there was betty and when he thought of her his soul seemed to go out of him too late too late and so he rose and walked sorrowfully away when mary ballard came home from church she found her little daughter up in her room on her knees beside her bed her arms stretched out over the white counterpane asleep she had suffered until nature had taken her into her own soothing arms and put her to sleep through sheer weakness her cheeks were still burning and her eyelids red from weeping mary thought her in a fever and gently helped her to remove the pretty muslin dress and got her to bed betty drew a long sigh as her head sank back into the pillow my head aches don't worry mother dear she thought her heart was closed for ever on her terrible secret mother'll bring you something for it dear you must have eaten something at the picnic that didn't agree with you she kissed betty's cheek and at the door paused to look back on her and a strange misgiving smote her i can't think what ails her she said to martha she seems to be in a high fever did she sleep well last night perfectly but we talked a good while before we went to sleep perhaps she got too tired yesterday i thought she seemed excited too mrs walters always makes her coffee so strong peter junior came in to dinner buoyant and happy he was disappointed not to see betty and frankly avowed it he followed mary into the kitchen and begged to be allowed to go up and speak to betty for only a minute but mary thought sleep would be the best remedy and he would better leave her alone he had been to church with his father and all through the morning service as he sat at his father's side he had meditated how he could persuade the elder to look on his plans with some degree of favour enough at least to warrant him in going on with them and trust to his father's coming around in time neither he nor richard were at the elders at dinner and the meal passed in silence except for a word now and then in regard to the sermon hester thought continually of her son and his hopes but as she glanced from time to time in her husband's face she realized that silence on her part was still best whenever the elder cleared his throat and looked off out of the window as was his wont when about to speak of any matter of importance her heart leapt and her eyes gazed intently at her plate to hide the emotion she could not restrain her hands grew cold and her lips tremulous but still she waited it was the elder's custom to sleep after the sunday's dinner which was always a hearty one lying down on the sofa in the large parlour where the closed blinds made a pleasant sombreness hester passed the door and looked in on him as he lay apparently asleep his long bony frame stretched out and the muscles of his strong face relaxing to a softness they sometimes assumed when sleeping her heart went out to him oh if he only knew if she only dared his boy ought to love him and understand him if they would only understand then she went up into peter junior's room and sat there where she had sat seven years before where she had often sat since gazing across at the red-coated old ancestor her hands in her lap her thoughts busy with her son's future even as then 
If all the others had lived, would the quandary and the struggle between opposing wills have been as great for each one as for this sole survivor? Where were those little ones now? Playing in happy fields and waiting for her and the stern old man who also suffered, but knew not how to reveal his heart? Again and again the words repeated themselves in her heart mechanically, "'Wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord,' and then again, "'Oh, Lord, how long!' Peter Junior returned early from the Ballards, since he could not see Betty, leaving the field open for Martha and her guest, much to the guest's satisfaction. He went straight to the room occupied by Richard whenever he was with them, but no Richard was there. His valise was all packed ready for his start on the morrow, but there was no line pinned to the frame of the mirror telling Peter Junior where to find him, as was Richard's way in the past. With a fleeting glance around to see if any bit of paper had been blown away, he went to his own room, and there he found his mother, waiting. In an instant that long-ago morning came to his mind, and as then he went swiftly to her, and, kneeling, clasped her in his arms. "'Are you worried, mother mine? It's all right. I will be careful and restrained. Don't be troubled.' Hester clasped her boy's head to her bosom and rested her face against his soft hair. For a while the silence was deep and the moments burned themselves into the young man's soul with a purifying fire never to be forgotten. Presently she began speaking to him in low murmuring tones. "'Your father is getting to be an old man, Peter dear, and I, I am no longer young. Our boy is dear to us, the dearest. In our different ways we long only for what is best for you. If only it might be revealed to you and us alike.' Many paths are good paths to walk in, and the way may be happy in any one of them, for happiness is of the spirit. It is in you, not made for you by circumstances. We have been so happy here since you came home wounded, and to be wounded is not a happy thing, as you well know, but it seemed to bring you and me happiness nevertheless, did it not, dear? Indeed, yes, mother, yes, it gave me a chance to have you to myself a lot, and that ought to make any man happy, with a mother like you. And now a new happiness came to me, the other day, that I meant to speak of yesterday, and couldn't after getting so angry with father. It seemed like sacrilege to speak of it then, and besides, there was another feeling that made me hesitate. So you are in love with someone, Peter? Yes, mother, how did you guess it? Because only love is a feeling that would make you say you could not speak of it when your heart is full of anger. Is it Betty, dear? Yes, mother, you are uncanny to read me so. She laughed softly and held him closer. I love Betty too, Peter. You will always be gentle and kind. You will never be hard and stern with her. Mother, have I ever been so? Can't you tell by the way I have always acted toward you that I would be tender and kind? She will be myself, my very own. How could I be otherwise? Again Hester smiled her slow, wise smile. You have always been tender, Peter, but you have always gone right along and done your own way absolutely. The only reason there has not been more friction between you and your father has been that you have been tactful. Also, you have never seemed to desire unworthy things. You have been a good son, dear, I am not complaining, and the only reason why I have never, or seldom, felt hurt by your taking your own way has been that my likings have usually responded to yours, and the thing I most desired was that you should be allowed to take your own way. It is good for a man to be decided and to have a way of his own. I have liked it in you. But the matter still stands that it has always been your way and never anyone's else's that you have taken.' I can see you being stern even with a wife you thought you wholly loved if her will once crossed yours. Peter Junior was silent and a little hurt. He rose and paced the room. I can't think I could ever cross Betty or be unkind. It seems preposterous, he said at last. Perhaps it might never seem to you necessary, Peter. Boy, listen. You say, she will be myself, my very own. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that when you are married, her personality will be merged in yours, and so you two will be one? 
If so, you will not be completed and rounded out, and she will be lost in you. A man does not reach his full manhood to completion until he has loved greatly and truly, and has found the one who is to complete him. At best, by ourselves, we are never wholly man or wholly woman, until this great soul completion has taken place in us. Then children come to us, and our very souls are knit in one, and still the mystery goes on and on. Never are we completed by being lost, either one, in the will or nature of the other. But to make the whole and perfect creature, each must retain the individuality belonging to himself or herself, each to each the perfect and equal other half. Peter Jr. paused in his walk and stood for a moment looking down on his mother, awed by what she revealed to him of her inner nature. "'I believe you have done this, mother. You have kept your own individuality complete, and father doesn't know it.' "'Not yet, but my hand will always be in his, and some day he will know. You are very like him, and yet you understand me as he never has, so you see how our oneness is wrought out in you. That which you have in you of your father is good and strong. Never lose it.' The day may come when you will be glad to have had such a father. Out in the world men need such traits, but you must not forget that sometimes it takes more strength to yield than to hold your own way. Yes, it takes strength and courage sometimes to give up, and tremendous faith in God. There, I hear him walking about. Go down and have your talk with him. Remember what I say, dear, and don't get angry with your father. He loves you too. Have you said anything to him yet about me, mother? No. I have decided that it will be better for you to deal with him yourself, courageously. You'll remember? Peter Jr. took her again in his arms as she rose and stood beside him, and kissed her tenderly. Yes, mother. Dear, good, wise mother. I'll try to remember all. It would have been easier for you, maybe, if ever father's mother had said to him the things you have just said to me. Life teaches us these things. If we keep an open mind, so God fills it. She stood still in the middle of the room, listening to his rapid steps in the direction of the parlour. Then Hester did a thing very unusual for her to do of a Sunday. She put on her shawl and bonnet, and walked out to see Mary Ballard. No one ever knew what passed between Peter Jr. and his father in that parlour. The elder did not open his lips about it either at home or at the bank. That Sunday evening someone saw Peter Jr. and his cousin walking together up the bluff where the old camp had stood, toward the sunset. The path had many windings, and the bluff was dark and brown, and the two figures stood out clear and strong against the sky of gold. That was the last scene of either of the young men in the village. The one who saw them told later that he knew they were the twins, because one of them walked with a stick and limped a little, and that the other was talking as if he were very much in earnest about something, for he was moving his arm up and down and gesticulating. End of chapter 11